This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. This BFM Budget 2023 special is brought to you by Ma Singh. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. There are more than 7,000 types of rare diseases that are known today, yet the interest and investment into rare diseases are often limited into a handful of the more well-known rare diseases, if I could say that. Yet for people living with rare diseases and for their families, the journey from diagnosis to accessing treatment can take both a huge financial and emotional toll. So ahead of the tabling of Budget 2023, we want to look more into the need to invest into rare diseases. And so joining me on the show today are Nadia Hanim Abdulatif, President of the Malaysian Rare Diseases Society and Professor Dr. Tong Miao Kiong, Consultant Pediatrician and Clinical Geneticist from University Malaya Medical Centre on to find out how we can better support the rare disease community in Malaysia and whether we will finally see rare diseases being on the priority list. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us today. Perhaps I'll start with you, Prof Nong. You know, could you provide some background into what we know about the incidence of rare diseases in Malaysia, considering that, you know, until today, we still don't have a rare diseases registry? Yeah, that's a very good question because uh, very often we work in a vacuum. So very often we use data from overseas, but this does not translate well for us because we need our own local data. So in general... Uh, we still tend to use the definition of rare disease from the European Union, which is like one in 2000. But I think with some modifications, I think uh, following discussion with various stakeholders, uh, we have uh, used one in 4000. And, and that was the uh, number that was used by the Malaysian Rare Disorder Society for the last, I think, uh, 18 years. So that was a number that we have been using. Mm. Could you elaborate a bit more on why it's important for us to have those numbers here in Malaysia rather than using what we extrapolate from overseas? It is very important because uh, healthcare resources are limited. So therefore, it is imperative that we get accurate information so that when the healthcare planners and the healthcare economists uh, look at the data for rare diseases, uh, they will get the up-to-date and the most reliable uh, and accurate information on this so that no one gets left out and left behind due to inadequate uh, healthcare modeling. Uh, it is very important because, uh, you know, treatment and management of many of these uh, conditions are very expensive. So even a slight mistake or adjustment are uh, needed to, to make sure that uh, everyone gets their fair share of treatment. Uh, and this is basically one of the pillars in equity in healthcare that we're talking about. Hmm. Speaking of no one being left out or left behind, the rare disease community has been one of the most vulnerable throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, Nadia, we're now nearing the third end of the third year of the pandemic, but considering how the how vulnerable the community was during the early months of the pandemic. How is the rare disease community in Malaysia coping now with what a lot of people see as things returning to normal? Thanks for that, uh, Suen. I think the challenges for us remain. Uh, and to be honest, it would have probably been, well, I guess the, the way to put it is 
COVID-19 exacerbated risks and vulnerabilities that we already had to begin with. Um, so somewhere in the middle of the pandemic, uh, we had an engagement with 16 different patient groups across Malaysia through 10 different uh, sessions where we called high community RD. And the main reason for that was the Malaysian Red Disease Society wanted to uh, get in touch with all of the different patient groups uh, that is in our network, be it uh, NGOs that have already established themselves or what we call allies, uh, also including patient groups or those that do not have a group right now because they belong to uh, diagnoses that are so rare uh, that there are so few of them to begin with. And the majority of the respondents have shared uh, commonalities and issues. Of course, uh, one is uh, in terms of finances, in terms of um, not being able to go back or return to work. Uh, some, of course, have had to leave work due to family care. Um, another a real big concern for them is, of course, the sustainability of uh, medical needs and care for their loved ones. Because our our group includes not only patients themselves, but also a huge group of caregivers that have either had to pivot their jobs, leave their jobs, or take extra jobs to be able to support uh, their loved ones with um, RD. Uh, tied to that, of course, will be other issues, for example, uh, mental health, issues of uh, mobility, economic distress. So in, in the survey that we did, at least 41% said that they did not have added challenges because the challenges that they faced were already so um, aggravated to begin with even prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But the top four areas uh, that affected a lot of our families were finances, mental health, access to treatment and medication, and the need for assistance to care for RD individuals. So this is basically uh, extended family support uh, and care. And these four main issues continue to be the top four, um, even prior to the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic just sort of like exacerbated it even more, and we're seeing that uh, remain even now. From a policy perspective, Nadia, how would you describe Malaysia's approach towards addressing and investing into rare diseases thus far, considering that these are problems that, like you say, the RD community has been facing even prior to the pandemic? I like that question, but that's a minefield. <laughs> to begin with, <laughs> we don't actually have a policy on RD just yet. Um, it is definitely something which um, Prof Tong, myself and every RD advocate um, that I can think of in Malaysia uh, is hoping for. Not only that, we do hope that one day the government and us uh, can come with a cohesive and comprehensive policy on rare diseases in Malaysia, as well as perhaps even one on orphan drugs um, and how this would then help uh, families uh, and, you, you know, um, the, the, the population at large. Because very often when we talk about the issue of RD, we talk about issues of unmet needs. Mm -hmm. um, and they tend to be very basic unmet needs. A lot of people see us as a community that is expensive, right? When we see rare disease, uh, very often the first thing that we are equated with would be cost of medical treatment that is way too expensive. Therefore, we've even had conversations such as it's not worth to save the lives of X, Y, Z, because in actuality, there are thousands of other Malaysians that can be saved with the same amount of money. We understand that. But when we're talking about the issue of 
universal healthcare access, which is something that the country is already committed to. If we're talking about health equity, then things like early diagnosis, things like continuous medical care, things like access to the right doctors in the right places in a timely manner, options for genetic counselling, family planning, sexual reproductive health, these are not expensive. And these are not things that are alien to any other Malaysian that would need the basic services that everyone would need. So we continue to advocate for the fact that if you can solve issues for the rare disease community, it is going to be beneficial for Malaysia at large, not just for us alone, because you've set the standard where everybody can pass through the bar. That's one. Now, the other is we keep thinking of the rare disease community as expensive in terms of medical needs. Although that might be true, we forget that they are lives and people that can actually contribute back to the country. One of the key things that we have not fully studied and understood is the cost, the socioeconomic cost to the country for not fully tapping into the potential of the RD community. Parents who were otherwise working have now had to stop jobs to be able to become the primary caregiver for their children or their family members. Um, Youths and adults who actually are adults living with rare diseases, but who otherwise can contribute back to the economy, who can by right be groomed and and enabled to become good taxpayers instead are now receiving welfare and aid. So we're not tackling the issue, not only talking about womb to tomb, right? But we're not tapping into the opportunities that lie where the community, the RD community in Malaysia can actually be a force for good, not just those that are receiving aid, but those that can contribute back to the economy, the welfare, even policymaking uh, for the country. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to say that we're now seeing the rise of uh, more youths, more patient advocates, uh, more uh, support uh, coming from all types of stakeholders, not not just um, you know the medical fraternity and the patient groups themselves. We've seen now both in terms of public, private, and partnerships coming out to the fore. Uh, and I'm hopeful, right? In future, we are going to see maybe more entrepreneurs from the RD group, um, more policymakers from the RD group, um, hopefully even more doctors from the RD group in future. Then the next uh, junior prof tong in the making, hopefully somewhere. <laughs> And Prof, from a clinician's perspective, I guess, what impact have you seen from the from our approach or perhaps our lack of a policy towards rare diseases? Yeah, I, I must correct you. I think there are some uh, policies in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if you look at uh, the situation 20 years ago, uh, there was nothing. And now we have quite a number of patients uh, who are surviving. Mm-hmm. There are many survivors now, uh, largely because the healthcare system uh, does look after them uh, in a way that is ad hoc, really. So uh, we had a policy that is rather ad hoc at the moment. Now, this kind of ad hoc system actually may be sustainable only in the short term. and But looking at it from the long-term perspective, we are going to face a problem. And this is where I'm going to elaborate a little bit more. Now, we are now getting uh, children who have survived their initial crisis in life, uh, the rare diseases, uh, 
where they had a lot of complications, but they are now treated, they had surgery done, and now they are going to school and perhaps even go to universities and starting out on the cusp of their new life as an adult. Now, what's happening is that we have we are now seeing this whole cohort of uh, survivors who are now moving into adulthood. And at the same time, we have not done very much in terms of uh, doing what we have done for the last 20 years, and that is doing it on an ad hoc basis. We need a more structured and formal program uh, that is sustainable in the long term. Now, let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. Now, treatment for some of these rare conditions is lifelong, right? And if you start a treatment, we can't stop halfway and say, let's look for more funds or more money to treat them. It has to be right at the outset, there is a, a plan, a treatment uh, for life, uh, even if so. And, and not only just that, it's also planned uh, for their future in terms of their education, uh, in terms of the vocation training, uh, as well as uh, making sure that they become good citizens and become productive members of society. Uh, all that take a lot of planning and I don't see that happening at the moment. Uh, and this is uh, where we really need to work on it because in the second phase of this uh, development of uh, for the children and survivors of rare diseases, we really need to have good uh, funding models as well as healthcare system that can cater not just for their needs in uh, medical care, but also in terms of uh, education uh, in terms of their social welfare, as well as many other facets of uh, life that we all take for granted. Hmm. That's a lot of planning that we've not considered, right? Yes, we've made, we've helped them past their initial crisis, their health scares and all that. But now what of helping them to lead a fulfilling life? Um, we'll continue our discussion after a quick break. And I want to get into more about what solutions we can see to improve how we can help these people um, access treatment as well. And as well, and we'll end our discussion later on what both of you would like to see from Budget 2023. I'm speaking today to Nadia Hanim Abdul Latif, President of the Malaysian Rare Diseases Society and Professor Dr. Tong Miao Kiong, Consultant Pediatrician and Clinical Geneticist at University Malaya Medical Centre about the need to invest more into rare diseases. Don't go anywhere, we'll be right back after a quick break. BFM 89.9. Stay tuned to BFM's Budget 2023 special, brought to you by Marsing. This BFM Budget 2023 special is brought to you by Ma Singh. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su and On the show with me today are Nadia Hanim Abdullatif, President of the Malaysian Rare Diseases Society and Professor Dr. Tong Miao Kiong, Consultant Pediatrician and Clinical Geneticist at University Malaya Medical Centre. And we are discussing um, Budget 2023, really, in, um, the importance of investing into rare diseases and what we would like to see um, for this area of healthcare in the upcoming tabling of the budget. Now, before 
before the break, we were talking about um, the challenges that the community has been facing, not just at the beginning of the pandemic, but even from before and the challenges that have been aggravated and are still existing throughout. Now, right before the break, um, Professor Tong was talking about the um, ad hoc nature of our policy towards rare diseases that now that, you know, we've had a cohort of individuals whom we've helped to survive and to thrive from their initial diagnosis, now we need to do more to support them as they move into adulthood, at, as they move, as they, you know, expand on their education, on their careers. Um, Nadia, you had something to add about this, that a policy cannot be ad hoc, you know, it has to be a bit more comprehensive. Do you want to elaborate more on that? Sure. Um, one of the key things that the Malaysian Rare Diseases um, uh, Group or Malaysian Rare Disorders Society has been working on is working very closely with the Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development on reviews for the Persons with Disability Act. This has been multi-year. We've been very much part of that discussion. Um, and even till today, we don't necessarily have room in the Persons with Disability Act because the classification of what is considered disabled is more functional in nature. But on a, on a larger um, point, what we're trying to say is when we plan for a policy in the country and we want to help or assist a specific vulnerable group, and it doesn't have to be RD. In this particular case, we're talking about individuals with rare diseases. The laws, policies, and legislations and pieces of enactment has to be developed in tandem and connected to all other existing pieces of law or legislation, et cetera. So for example, we've got the Persons with Disability Act, we've got things like the Employment Act, we've got the Child Act, the Child Protection Policy, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when the rare diseases policy is developed for Malaysia, and, and I am hopeful that this will happen sooner rather than later, it should actually reference and connect to all of these other existing documents that are already in place, which then helps the approach to assist and enable the community to be one that is multidisciplinary, more cohesive, and covers beyond just medical needs. Because the, the right to life, the right to survival, the right to participation, the right to development uh, is all encompassing. So we should be looking at the interconnectivity of not only legal systems, but also support services. Mm. Uh, Professor, I, I was reading an ideas white paper that you had co-authored in 2019. And in that paper, it was proposed that, you know, we could have a rare diseases and often drugs act. How do you see something like that playing a role in the landscape of rare diseases today? You know, what would that act, what would that act do? Yes. Um, while I support what Nadia has said early on, that there are quite a number of acts and legislations already in place, uh, Child Act, uh, and so on, uh, we actually need a very dedicated piece of legislation that cuts across uh, all ministries and all facets of life. Uh, in the past, for example, the, the Child Act uh, was very closely tied into child abuse and so on and so forth. Uh, it did not specify very clearly that you know every child's life uh, is precious and uh, in fact, Child neglect uh, is 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 uh, in an issue here for rare disease because while they might be surviving and, and uh, alive, uh, a lot of them are not getting adequate treatment. For example, rehabilitation uh, services, 
uh, as well as uh, career advancements and so on. These are not looked into uh, in a holistic manner. So therefore, we really need uh, a, a holistic piece of legislation that covers all aspects of uh, a person's life with rare conditions. Uh, and as uh, Nadia has mentioned many times, from womb to tomb. Uh, and this actually uh, had a very significant role to play uh, as we move forward uh, to our next step. Mm. So if we, if I could bring us back to the clinical side of things, then talking about investment into um, better diagnosis or better treatment, you know, if I first look at the diagnostic stage, it's not uncommon to hear about the diagnostic odyssey that a lot of parents go through um, here on Health and Living. We've spoken to multiple parents of children with different rare diseases about what they have to go through just to get um, a diagnosis or to realise that their child has a rare disease. Prof, what do you think we can feasibly do to improve early detection of rare diseases? Now, I think the most important thing is everyone has to acknowledge is that uh, we have been spending way too little uh, in terms of healthcare budget. And even the Minister of Health himself has said that, you know, the overall healthcare allocation of less than 3% is really, really too low uh, for all sorts of healthcare needs of the country, more so for you know the, the needs of uh, people with rare conditions. Uh, we actually really need it now that this budget uh, to be in, increased uh, by double or triple fold for patients and families with rare conditions because uh, they had been waiting for the last 20, 30 years for this to happen, but it did not. Now, this increase uh, in, in expenditure or, in, uh, or should I say the healthcare uh, budget, yeah, it's actually should cover, uh, a lot of it should cover on screening and preventive aspects of rare diseases. Uh, studies have shown that even a simple newborn screening test for rare conditions, uh, it's, it's, it's actually will pay itself back very quickly in terms of its investment value, the returns of uh, investment for a newborn screening program for rare condition is definitely uh, worth looking at. Mm -hmm. uh, many studies have been shown, have shown that, you know, if you can detect babies and young children with rare conditions at an early stage before complications have set in, before they suffered any catastrophic event, uh, treatment started at that early age will be very, very helpful because it meant that these children would not suffer any complications and would go on to have a normal life. Mm. A lot of times parents only notice something is wrong when their child has developed some sort of symptoms right? or they're not hitting certain developmental milestones. What would this newborn screening test look like? How would it be carried out? Well, basically, we have been doing newborn screening in Malaysia for many, many years now, for over 50 years. And many parents will know that, for example, the midwives or the doctors will take a sample of the cord blood from the baby. Mm -hmm. And we do screen for some uh, of these conditions, for example, G6PD deficiency, which is a genetic condition, uh, and also for congenital hypothyroidism, which is low thyroid hormone uh, in the cord blood. And both of these conditions leads to uh, learning disability. So the government has actually taken the correct step in screening for these conditions. Now, there are many, many 
hundreds, even thousands of other conditions that can lead to learning disability. So the question is, why not we screen for this condition as well? Why mm -hmm. stop at two? We should be screening more, hundreds perhaps, because this will actually really make a difference in the long, long run. Mm, so it's essentially just using the same sample but screening for more diseases, is that right? You can use the same sample, but nowadays, because of these changes in uh, genomic technology, mm -hmm. uh, most of these tests now are used what we call a, a heel prick. So when you prick a little the baby's heel, you put perhaps three or four dots of drops of blood on a piece of filter paper, and this uh, piece of paper now, which the ba uh, which contain the baby's blood, can be sent. Uh, for analysis for hundreds of different diseases, uh, perhaps even the whole genome of the uh, baby as has already been done in many countries in the West, for example, in the US and so on. So you can potentially screen for many of these life-threatening conditions just based on two or three drops of blood uh, from the baby, perhaps at 24 hours of life. Mm, all right, that does sound very promising. So hopefully, you know, that is something that, uh, you know, we can see a lot more investment into. Now, another vital part of early detection is, and I think that's something that Nadia touched on a bit earlier, is is having qualified specialists, right? Whether it's clinical geneticists like yourself or genetic counsellors. Um, and these are professions that we know we have an insufficient number of across the country, like a lot of other um, healthcare specialists. Prof, what do you think we can do to build a cohort of specialists or rather should we be training existing healthcare workers to be able to better detect and refer potential RD cases? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, Suen, because, you know, right from the outset, uh, we have been uh, running the whole, you know, uh, treatment program and uh, screening and testing for rare diseases uh, from a expertise of a handful of experts in the whole country. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we are doing a, a humongous job here, uh, given the task that is uh, given to us. We definitely need uh, a lot more genetic counsellors. We need them to be recognised by the public service department. So if, uh, if you're looking at a budget, for example, uh, we just probably need about four genetic counsellors per million population. That would just translate to 120 genetic counsellors, which will be serving the whole country, not only just in the Klang Valley, but the whole of Malaysia, including Sabah and Sarawak. Now, the genetic counsellors have an immense role to play because they reach out to the population and they will be highly accessible to the B40 group uh, of uh, patients, for example, and many of these simple preventive strategies like genetic counselling, uh, newborn screening, and so on, are highly effective. And there are huge returns uh, for the investment that they put in just by creating that 100 or so posts for genetic counsellors. So I really, really like to urge, you know, Ministry of Finance and those who are health planning the system uh, please look at this need, uh, particularly in the public service department. You may want to cut down on other posts, for example, clerical staff, but you really need to focus a little bit more on newer technologies like genomic technology, uh, medical genetics, and so on, and bioinformatics, because these are really uh, fields that will really have a lot of returns on investment. We need this kind of expertise uh, in the government service because we need to reach out to the B40 population, which are really poorly served at the moment. Mm. Nadia? 
I would actually add that on top of the formal recognition of genetic counselors and geneticists that are doing, you know, I, I think carrying a, a huge load on their shoulder, I think one of the things that perhaps we really need to do is having more posts of genetic counselors in government service itself. So a lot of our genetic counselors right now are operating in the private sector. And this in itself is a barrier to a lot of patients being able to access uh, assistance and care. And I think a lot of people don't realize that Malaysia is one of the first few countries in the region to actually have a postgraduate course on genetic counseling. There's a master's in genetic counseling program in University Kebangsaan and Malaysia. So the base for the education and training of genetic counselors is there, is available in Malaysia. We now need to uh, you know, have um, not only registration and certification, um, but also expand um, on the talent pool that we already have. In fact, we have you know, uh, amazing geneticists and genetic counselors that have had to actually serve abroad because uh, this, the spaces that they have uh, might not be available here. Um, other than that, we were also talking about how do we assist other healthcare providers who are non-genetically uh, trained to also be more aware of uh, rare disease conditions. Because to be honest, the majority of us parents and caregivers actually meet our usual family physicians or mm -hmm. pediatricians first, who may not be pakar genetic, who may not be like Prof Tong or the people at GCSM, Genetic Counseling Society Malaysia, that is aware of a lot of this. And very often what happens is patients get misdiagnosed or they're either undiagnosed, misdiagnosed or totally lost in the system. So if we can have more doctors at least you know uh, aware of if something looks amiss flag and this is the way to go or these are the people that you contact or these are some of the things and we're seeing more and more of this because uh, especially pediatricians and a huge shout out to pediatricians uh, endocrinologists uh, in fact even gynecologists that are helping um, our patients who have later onset rd because the reality of it is as what prof tong mentioned not all rare diseases manifests either uh, can be detected in the womb or when the baby is born. Sometimes it's more sinister and happens later on in life uh, when the person is a lot older. For example, right now, uh, MRDS is working together with Institute Jantung Sarawak um, to help build a group of ATTRCM patients. And that's also a type of uh, rare disease. And they tend to show and manifest later on in life. And when I say later, it might be 50, 60 and above. But what we're seeing in Borneo is that the families that are showing manifestations of these rare disease are starting much earlier, some, somewhere between the ages of 30 and 40. And the doctors there are flagging that it could well be because of the intermarriage that is happening in the community. So a lot of these things require... Um, other doctors and other healthcare providers. In fact, it can actually be your occupational therapist or your speech therapist. It doesn't have to be uh, only a specialist, right? It's multidisciplinary, everybody together care um, that, that would help uh, to at least raise the alarm and flag. And I know Prof wants to add that, but I just wanted to share that although 75% of non-genetic healthcare providers have heard of genetic counseling services, many actually face barriers of accessing um, and utilizing services uh, in Malaysia. And some of the uh, barriers to genetic counseling services in Malaysia are, number one, their own, um, maybe the access to their personal practice. Number two, insurance-related issues. Number three, 
maybe challenging decisions from the patients or the patients' families themselves. Um, number four, it can also be ethical dilemmas. Um, you know, we we also belong to a culture where you just have to accept whatever's happening and things like that. And of course, number five, unclear guidelines as to what needs to happen and where to next. Um, maybe I let uh, Prof chime in. Go, Prof. Yes, I just want to expand a little bit on some points uh, that Nadia has brought up. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, rare disease is not just found in children and babies. It can also be equally found in adults and even uh, elderly people. So I, I really need to dispel this notion that rare diseases only happen in children. So for those who are listening in, please take note that rare disease can happen to anyone regardless of your socioeconomic status, your ethnic background, your age, and so on and so forth. So it is, it can happen to anyone. The second thing that I like to mention now is currently all the ad hoc budget and the policy making are mainly focused within the Ministry of Health, Mm -hmm. which has been doing a fantastic job in helping patients. However, I like to mention the point about capacity building because the university teaching hospitals do not get uh, any share of this budget for treatment of rare diseases that uh, we are aware of. And as a result of these uh, shortcomings, uh, many of our junior doctors, specialists, who are training in local universities, local public universities, have very little exposure to rare diseases in their training. And what this, what this meant, meant is that uh, many of these up-and-coming young uh, doctors, specialists, have very little experience. And therefore, in the long run, you find that many of these uh, delayed diagnosis is going to come back and haunt us. Uh, many of these patients will not get uh, their treatment early, and the arduous diagnostic odyssey that you mentioned, uh, Suen, will continue long after uh, this episode's been aired on air. So we really need uh, to build up our capacity from the teaching point of view. And we also need to do research on rare diseases, uh, which is hardly done in this country because due to lack of funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of this research funding, they, they put in this requirement that there must be some form of commercialization, uh, return on investment. Now, many of this basic research on rare conditions have no immediate returns uh, for, their, for the funders, for example. So it, it really leaves it to the government to make sure that there is enough research grants for people who are interested to do research on rare conditions in Malaysia because many of our conditions are unique and they are very different from those that are reported uh, in the literature, for example. So capacity building, funding for teaching hospitals and rare diseases, not just for service, but also for research. Hmm. Let's talk about treatment for a bit, right? Because in many cases, these orphan drugs are incredibly expensive to purchase. Um, parents are left to look for financial support wherever they can. Um, from what I understand, treatment for just one individual can go into can go upwards of half a million per year. And in, like you said, Prof, in some cases, treatment is lifelong. Considering that, you know, rare diseases often only receive a small budget allocation from MOH. In the past years, we've seen like um, numbers just between 10 to 20 million. And in some cases, you know, in one case in 2019, I saw I read that um, 
16 million was given to um, hospitals to treat rare diseases for six existing patients and eight new patients. That's an incredibly small number of patients um, when you look at it, right? So how can we better provide life-saving treatment without breaking the bank? Is there, is there any way that we can go around this? Okay, this is an extremely difficult question uh, and I will try to answer it in, in, uh, in a way that uh, uh, might sound a bit more uh, difficult uh, for those who are looking for returns on investment. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, we're talking about equity in healthcare. Equity simply meant that there will always be people or patients with rare diseases in our community, regardless of where they are. So we have to make an allowance or a budget uh, you know, for them. Uh, and they should be there in the first place. We should not react to it. Uh, only when we found the case, then we start looking for funds. We uh, put them up on the media and try to elicit sympathies from the listeners or the viewers to donate money, uh, do crowdfunding. These are not sustainable. We have done all this healthcare modeling. Uh, the only way that you know we need to kick this off and push it off is basically a sustained uh, public funding from the government, uh, which is protected. Uh, and only once you have done that, uh, you will see the returns come in. Because once these survivors are doing well, they become useful citizens and contribute to the country, then you will see that the, the real reason why we need to develop this. Now, the second way that I like to propose actually is to develop our own indigenous uh, bio pharmaceutical industry for rare conditions. Now, this is seldom talked about in this country because it is perceived that this industry would require a lot of investment. Mm -hmm. Now, I think most uh, listeners will be familiar with generic drug production uh, in China and India for many of these other drugs, uh, even their paracetamol, uh, they have generic version. So why not produce generic versions for uh, some of these rare conditions? Uh, which may have, uh, the patents may have expired, for example. Uh, and therefore, uh, this would really be sort of a focal point uh, to consider uh, in terms of health planning and for those in the Ministry of Finance, uh, thinking that we should invest in some of this uh, new industry whereby there's a great need, uh, but uh, they are currently uh, at high cost, but most of them, which uh, the patents have expired, I think we should look at them in terms of developing our own indigenous uh, pharmaceutical industry to support rare conditions. I think this is something worthwhile and I think uh, it is uh, viable in the long run. Mm. With a lot of things in health, nothing, we, we rarely see short-term gains and everything is an investment for the long run, for the health of the population and the benefit um, of the country. Um, how do we convince the government then that rare diseases should be a priority when, you know, someone might argue that, well, we have other more pressing issues like tackling NCDs, for example, or preparing for future pandemics. I mean, is it even fair to compare it with other health problems? Nadia, do you want to take this first? The answer is it will never be fair because to begin with, the playing field was never leveled. It was never a level playing field. And that's why the push that we're trying to highlight here is not equality, because we're not even there yet, right? We're looking at equity, um, and which is why I think 
it will always be a struggle. Now, to expand on Prof Tong's point, right? Um, again, the need to highlight that, yes, if you're talking about the absurd the absurdity of the amount, if you're talking about the number of people that we can actually help uh, versus the amount that is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not just about the cost of the drug itself. Now, if we go all the way back to, to Prof's point earlier, the method of funding currently is not sustainable if we look at it downstream. What we should be looking at, number one, is a more holistic approach. Number number two is uh, an approach which also looks at it upstream, right? What are the pricing policies? What are the other ways at which we can actually be doing this? And more importantly, the huge realization that only 5% or so of rare diseases actually do have medical interventions and drugs. So to say that every uh, every family or every individual with RD is expensive is not true mm-hmm. because the majority of us don't even have medical treatments to begin with. And it's actually about lifelong care that enables the person to function and live a life well-lived without actually often drugs because there is none that is available. So the cost of ensuring that, for example, children with rare diseases are able to go into mainstream schools or special needs schools are not extra budget that the government needs to raise. It is already in the funds of the zero reject policy that has been in place even before the prior government. If we're talking about jobs with dignity, that 1% quota has been around since Tun Mahade's time. 30 plus years on, we still haven't reached 1% quota in the workforce for civil service, let alone in the private sector, where there is no data whatsoever on how we are able to employ with inclusivity in mind. We don't have numbers, for example, in IPTA and IPTS on the number of individuals with rare diseases, but we do have a lot of anecdotal data that uh, or stories that show that just because you have, for example, uh, a debilitating condition or a comorbidity, or even if you're a person with disability, functional disability, not even a rare disease, uh, your chances of going into university and college is already greatly diminished. So I really want to stress this point that, yes, the budget that the government has put aside for maybe healthcare is only 3%. That's a, a grave, a gross underfigure. But the majority of the things that the rare disease community needs is not just medical intervention. It's way beyond that. So again, to Prof's good point right in the beginning, we have to look at the totality of what it means to have a life well lived. It's not just about the medication. There's no point having a medication, but the person is forever in bed, uh, not being able to study, not being able to go to school, not being able to go to work, not being able to, you know, uh, there's so much more to life than one particular area. And the majority of the rare disease community are people who can contribute and the budget is already there. The point now is how do we then help to open up so that those that have critical unmet needs for medical needs can also then participate in schools, participate in the workforce and everything else that is possible to them uh, if they do have the opportunity to. Uh, If we look at this in a more holistic angle, the point is it has to be comprehensive and holistic. So then to wrap up this discussion, you know, I'll start with you, Prof. What would you like to see then from Budget 2023 when it comes to rare diseases? How can we do better? Yeah. I like to stress this point, uh, Suen, that rare disease is just like any non-communicable disease. 
it is a non-communicable disease. But, uh, I, I need to state that. Now, many of these NCDs like lung cancer, obesity, diabetes, they're lifestyle diseases and they get the full range of treatment, even though they were due to probably, you know, that healthy, unhealthy diet or smoking. And yet, you know, as compassionate people, we treat them just the same because they deserve a second chance, right? Now, why not rare diseases? Why do we have a special compartmentalization for rare disease and say, oh, they're unique, they're expensive, they're different, and so on and so forth? I don't see the logic in it. It is a non-communicable disease, just like any other NCDs that we have in this country. So on that note and on that point, I'd like to implore the government, the public service, uh, the private centers, please think of rare diseases as just like any NCDs. They deserve our attention. They deserve our care, just like any other conditions. They should not be left out there to cater to their own needs. They need our help because if we don't do it, nobody is going to do it for them. So I, I really hope that this point will sink in. Thank you. And you, Nadia? Sure. Um, first and foremost, I think the key point I want to flag is that the rare disease community is not just the responsibility of the Ministry of Health. <laughs> I think that's super important. Mm -hmm. um, we are, like anyone else, Malaysians. Uh, we have the basic human rights like every other Malaysian. And we want to contribute like every other Malaysian that is there uh, to the level of our ability. So that's one. Number two, don't think about us as a cost. Think about us as an untapped human potential group of individuals and community that can actually contribute back to society and the nation um, if uh, inclusivity uh, and uh, you know uh, plans and processes are, are made available. Number three, I think we need strategies, policies and real actions that are comprehensive. We understand that the economy is heading towards a recession and something that we're not going to get out of anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Therein lies why we need to start thinking in a more comprehensive manner because the coffers are not going to get larger. It's going to get smaller. And if we don't think about this, to Prof's point, in a more proactive way, reactive measures are not going to help us sustain or survive. And uh, fourth, I pray and I hope for a Malaysia that's more inclusive, one where everyone can participate and I'm hopeful that we will reach there. Thank you both so much for speaking to me today. I've been speaking to Nadia Hanim Abdullatif, President of the Malaysian Rare Diseases Society and Professor Dr. Tong Miao Kiong, Consultant Pediatrician and Clinical Geneticist at University Malaya Medical Centre. And we've been talking about the need to invest into rare diseases and especially in a more sustainable and long-term manner ahead of Budget 2023. I'm Lim Suan and this has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9. This BFM Budget 2023 special was brought to you by Marsing. Reinvent spaces. Enhance life. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.